Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The U.S. State Department just released their 2019 Trafficking in Persons report. The report evaluates government's responses to trafficking across the globe and gives each country a ranking. During the Obama administration, the report began ranking the United States as well. This year, the U.S. maintained its ranking but came in for some sharp criticism. We're going to talk about the report and human trafficking. With me right now is uh, Elise Dobney. She is program manager for the Salvation Army's Stop It Initiative Against Human Trafficking. They co-facilitate Cook County's uh, Human Trafficking Task Force. Nice to see you again, Elise. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about the Stop It Initiative Against Human Trafficking and what you're doing there at the Salvation Army. So the Stop It program is a local response to human trafficking. We serve folks who've experienced human trafficking in the United States who currently live in northern Illinois. So adults and minors, foreign national, domestic, all gender identities, and people who've experienced sex and or labor trafficking. Our goal is to really foster independence, both independence from the trafficker as well as independence from our program. And so we do that through a couple different methods. We have intensive case management where we have staff who meet one-on-one with participants, but we also have a drop-in space for female-identified youth and young adults um, who've experienced exploitation and trafficking. And you, I mentioned you co-facilitate Cook County's Human Trafficking Task Force. What's that? What does it do? So the Cook County Human Trafficking Task Force is a collaborative with uh, 29 member agencies, and our goal is to really develop a comprehensive response to to address trafficking from a variety of perspectives. And so we have law enforcement and some government entities. We have NGOs, service providers. We have legal providers all coming to the table to really... uh, talk about the issue and what barriers we're experiencing, what things uh, participants are experiencing, and how we can better improve our response. From the universe of trafficking that you're seeing, um, and we're going to be in this conversation talking mostly about non-citizen people who have been trafficked, um, how, how many people are it seems like in in the report, in the State Department report, it said the overwhelming majority of people are domestically trafficked. Well, I can say in our program that's not consistent with what we are seeing. We are seeing about half of our participants um, coming from other countries, um, both without documentation as well as on temporary work visas. And so in at least in Chicagoland, we are seeing a lot more um, foreign national survivors of trafficking here. And uh, on the line with us now is uh, Gina Krajenski, and she uh, is with the Fuller Project, and they cover human trafficking. She's also co-author with Nadia Murad of The Last Girl, My Story of Captivity and My Fight Against the Islamic State. Her recent article in Foreign Policy is Trump's Human Trafficking Record is Fake News. Thanks very much for joining us, Jenna. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I wanted to get your reaction to the report and what the United States says about itself in the report, because in the United States maintained its um, its ranking in the 2019 Trafficking in Persons report that the State Department releases, but um, they did criticize themselves rather sharply. And um, what what are the criticisms that you're seeing on the U.S. side? Right. So this year's report was really hotly anticipated, partly because trafficking advocates and experts had been 
really monitoring what the Trump administration's policies, particularly having to do with immigration, had, had, you know, what kind of an effect they had had on trafficking within the U.S. So you saw in the U.S. narrative, which was very substantial, a lot of criticism of, for instance, the Trump administration's approach to LGBTQ rights. It mentioned the immigration policies such as family separation at the border. It mentioned scaling back of um, of protections for non-citizen victims of trafficking, such as T visas, which are special visas for victims of trafficking so that they can stay safely inside of the U.S. It mentioned a decrease in investigations across the country into trafficking. Um, and so it really did hit quite hard against the Trump administration, while still, of course, mentioning, for instance, that Congress has increased the amount of funding for victim services and things like that. The tier ranking was maintained. I think there was very little expectation that the U.S. would be downgraded. And part of that comes from a genuine belief that in spite of all of these policies, the U.S. still remains one of the leaders worldwide fighting trafficking and that our legislation is still very, very strong. But I think it also comes from some cynicism toward the U.S. ranking itself in the report and the notion that, you know, that would that would be quite a shockwave if the U.S. were to downgrade itself. Well, let's break down some of the criticisms that you were talking about there, because they're pretty complicated. And um, uh, I don't think most people know what a T visa is. And um, could you explain what um, Elise, do you want to explain what a T visa is? Yeah. So a T visa is a a remedy for foreign national survivors of human trafficking. If we can prove that they experienced human trafficking in the United States, they're eligible to apply for um, this immigration remedy. And so it's a, a several year visa and then people can apply for a green card. Um, I think the challenge that we see with with the T visa process is it takes quite a long time. Um, it can take upwards of a year to just prepare the application and Actually, the wait time has increased since the TIP report. We're now seeing wait times of up to 34 months before the visa decision is made. And so you can imagine the need and kind of gap in resources and stability for an almost three-year time period. Um, Jenna, you've been reporting on this. Um, What's been happening with the T visas? Why, Why is the waiting time going up so much? Well, the waiting time is going up because the USCIS agents who adjudicate the reports are being tasked with, oftentimes, with requesting more evidence from applicants. So a lot of the lawyers and advocates who I spoke to said that previously what you would need in order to get a T visa is a testimony from a victim of trafficking that they had been trafficked. You can't really expect a lot of victims of trafficking to leave their trafficking situation with much more evidence than that with a paper trail of any sort. But now they're experiencing a lot of requests for more evidence from the individuals who are adjudicating these applications. So that adds to the wait time. They're also being rejected when they apply for fee waivers often. So one of the things that the T-Visa does is it gives victims of trafficking the opportunity to be essentially pardoned for crimes that they may have committed in connection to their trafficking, whether that's crossing the border illegally, whether that's prostitution, things like that. So they apply during the T-Visa process to have those crimes overlooked so they can get the visa. 
Um, that application, that form usually costs around $1,000, but in the past, lawyers have been able to get that fee waived. Now they're getting a refusal, a lot of rejections for that fee waiver, which also adds to the time because now those victims of trafficking are having to come up with close to $1,000 in order to submit the application. And then I think in general, you're just seeing these visas across the board being harder to obtain Um because of Trump's policies. And so wait times are just going up in sort of all corners. Now, it seems like the T visa was something that was a great success story and that people were, I mean, that it was innovative. Other countries don't do it. We were doing it and it was working from your perspective, Elise? I think that it's a great idea. And for folks who were awarded the T visa, it's been a wonderful remedy. Um, However, there haven't been a lot of T visas awarded. There are several visas for which people would be eligible. There's also it's a U visa, which is a victim of crime. Um, And one of those crimes can be human trafficking. You look at the number of U visas that have been awarded every year and we well surpass the limit. We have not come anywhere near hitting our limit for T visas ever since the visa existed. All right. And Jenna, do you see the things that are happening now as an extension of some of the Trump administration's policies on on immigration? That it really sounds like, you know, they're, they're just going for a higher standard on everything. Well, I do. And I think that the real, the really troubling thing is that the Trump administration has kind of tried to have it both ways. They've tried to present themselves as leaders on trafficking. They've really claimed it as the cornerstone human rights issue of their administration, while at the same time, you know, at least brings up just the sheer numbers of foreign national victims of human trafficking. And those victims, for a variety of reasons, you know, are vulnerable to all kinds of things within the U.S. And so protecting those victims should be, for any administration that wants to help human trafficking victims, a real priority. Instead, I think what you're seeing is the Trump administration sort of using the rhetoric of fighting human trafficking to push forward a lot of their immigration policies. So you really saw that when Trump was pushing very hard for the wall with Mexico. He was kind of characterizing this human trafficking victim being duct taped and brought brought across the border in the back of a van and saying that the wall would stop human trafficking. People who know about the sort of scope of human trafficking within the U.S. know that a border wall would not stop human trafficking. And yet the president was very eager to use it to push forward his immigration policies. And so I think that that is, in the long run, just very destructive for fighting human trafficking in the U.S. Um, Elise, in this area, do you see people, uh, most of them who, I mean, if you've got a majority that are uh, from other countries, uh, what, where, how do most trafficked people come in? I mean, I think we see a lot of cases where people are coming in through legal avenues, through temporary work visas. So um, whether they're working on farms or working in individual homes as nannies and in a domestic servitude type of situation, um, we see a lot of people entering through those means. We also see folks who um, have been brought into the country without proper documentation um, through a variety of methods of entry. The other thing that we see, though, is folks who are coming in seeking asylum, um, who are coming in through legal methods um, and then experience exploitation potentially once they arrive um, due to lack of resources and options and additional vulnerabilities that exist just by living, kind of waiting in that 
intermediary place. Now, um, one of the things that sounds like a real um, issue is uh, detention centers in the United States. Obviously, they're in the news all the time. But as uh, a magnet for trafficking, Jenna, what's been happening with that? Yeah, well, there are lots of concerns, for instance, about family separation and the vulnerability that creates, particularly for minors, to being trafficked. So it's very difficult. There's not hard data to track this yet. But if you talk to people who work on the border, if you talk to trafficking advocates and experts, and um, if you talk to immigration experts as well and lawyers, they will just recount you know, their own experiences um, seeing these children put into these vulnerable situations um, and their concerns that this is really going to amount to an increase in this kind of, in this form of trafficking. The other detention center issue that I think is really interesting and important are these legal cases that are pending um, against privately run immigrant detention centers. So for instance, there's a case right now against a Georgia-based detention center called Stewart Detention Center alleging that they are actually um, involved in labor trafficking with the immigrants who are detained there. So it's really interesting. They're using the Trafficking Victim Protection Act in order to bring this lawsuit. And I think that's significant because it frames the issue in a very different way. Once you put it in the kind of trafficking category, I think in a lot of people's minds, it makes it much more concrete and much more serious. And I do think that the lawyers have a good argument for saying that this is legal trafficking. I'm sorry, labor trafficking. Hmm. That's a really amazing thing. If the U.S. wanted to turn it around and address the criticisms, um, how how does it do it? I mean, what what are the things that you see, Elise, every day that you think, well, if we we could do this a lot better? I mean, I think that the reality is addressing trafficking is a very complicated, nuanced um, resp- it has to be a nuanced response. We have to look at a lot of the push and pull factors um, if we're really going to adequately address trafficking. So it's not just a matter of serving folks who've experienced trafficking and making sure that immigration remedies are awarded in a timely manner to everyone who is actually eligible for it. Um, it's a matter of addressing some of the attitudes and policies and things that we have in our communities that lead to more vulnerabilities for survivors or for people who are then recruited and victimized in this manner. And so give us an idea what you mean there. So, I mean, I think some of it is giving access to resources, um, figuring out ways that people can have stable housing um, and, and really, I'm trying to think of how to, um, Yeah, I think it's it's really meeting people where they are and providing the resources necessary to survive in, in appropriate ways, right? So everyone deserves food to eat, clothes, places to stay that are safe where people are not saying you have to do this or these awful things will happen to you. And so until we offer that kind of stability, it's going to be um, hard to totally prevent trafficking. 
Elise Dabney is a program manager for the Salvation Stop It Initiative Against Human Trafficking. They co-facilitate the Cook County Human Trafficking Task Force. And on the line with us has been Jenna Krajewski, and she's a reporter for the Fuller Project covering human trafficking. And her latest article in Foreign Policy is Trump's Human Trafficking Record is Fake News. She's written previously about it in The New Yorker. And she is the co-author with Nadia Murad of The Last Girl, My Story of Captivity and My Fight Against the Islamic State. Thank you both for joining us and talking about the 2019 Trafficking in Persons Report and some of the issues around trafficking today in the U.S. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the radical love message of Istanbul's new mayor. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The do-over election for the mayor's office in Istanbul got close attention and delivered surprising results. The challenger, Ekrem Mimamolu of the Republican People's Party, won against the ruling party's uh, candidate by a much wider margin this time, over 800,000 votes. His first margin in the first election was 15,000 votes. We're going to ponder the implications and lessons of the big race from Istanbul. With me is Aicha Alemadarolu, and she is the associate Kiman, uh, Associate Director of the Kiman Modern Turkish Studies Program and a Research Assistant Professor of Sociology at Northwestern University. Thanks for joining us again, Aicha. Good to talk to you. Hi. Thanks for having me, Joe. You know, I think when people heard about the election, the first election being annulled and the ruling party doing this, it was kind of assumed that the ruling party had a plan to defeat the opposition candidate and would do so in the second election. Um, why, why didn't the ruling party have a plan? Um, well, I think they didn't uh, see this coming. Uh, I think it's just a miscalculation of uh, of of what the voters want. Basically, it's a, just a very uh, mistaken uh, judgment of of uh, of the vote of the people's preferences. And um, most anal- analysts about the elections uh, have been referring to how uh, bad of a strategy w- this was on the on behalf of the party. You know, in li- and, you know, when I listened to mm-hmm. some of the comments, the, the voters were saying, "Well, I switched my vote because I thought it was unfair what they did." Yes, um, yes. Um, the you know the like uh, opinion polls in Turkey and um, in the society's preferences uh, show strongly that uh, Turkish voters uh, have an incli- inclination towards people who are oppressed, who who are uh, you know um, treated uh, in a in a wrong way, wrongly. So this we ha- we have seen this with Recep Tayyip Erdogan when he was jailed uh, in in the 1990s for uh, citing a poem. Um, he got out of jail and his, uh, you know, after in his political career in the aftermath was very much based on this idea of uh, 
you know, uh, unjustly th- uh, being treated. So I think uh, this uh, this also uh, played in the election of the Ikram Imam the second time with this much difference um, that, you know, he was uh, basically um, uh, treated uh, uh, in an in a unjust, unjust way. Um, yeah, so... And, uh, and I want to talk about his strategy. Ekram Imam, Imam Olu, he is... Um, Someone from the Republican People's Party. This is the um, centrist, rightist party that is associated with secularism in in Turkey, and he mm-hmm. promoted this idea of of radical love. And I I got to admit, I spent a, quite a bit of time lately in the book of radical love, their mm-hmm. their fifty page document on uh, what uh, their election strategy. Um, what was the what's the uh, radical love strategy? Can you explain what's going on here? Uh, sure, uh, it's a really really interesting uh, pamphlet or election um, campaign book. Uh, it it has a very like this informal language full of cartoons, and it's really providing a third like an alternative alternative to uh, the dominant political discourse of the ruling justice and development party and the people's coalition with this coalition with the um, uh, the nationalist party uh, this discourse has been very aggressive very divisive um, towards the opposition towards anyone basically is not who is not supporting uh, the coalition, the ruling party, uh, AKP. So this uh, new language is very much about like, um, you know, uh, bringing people together, reach out to, reaching out to communities that are not necessarily supporting uh, the, the, the JHP. And Ekrem um, Emilio mentioned this many times that, you know, he is going to, if he's elected, he's going to be the mayor of uh, 16 million people, not just the supporters of the uh, of the opposition uh, opposition coalition. And this was very, very important. I mean, it was a very um, sort of uh, missed, uh, like uh, people long for this kind of message in Turkish politics for many, many years because it has been like uh, very much based on, as I said, on hatred. And he said, uh, Imam always said many times that we are going to heal, heal the wounds of this uh, polarizing discourse. Um, and um, in that sense, I think it, it really worked. I mean, it was not only like, a, an alternative to the the ruling party's discourse, uh, but it's, it was also very very different from what we have seen in the Republican People's election campaign campaigns and their discourse for many years, uh, which was like you know belittling um, the AKP supporters, belittling Erdogan, and very much like based on uh, again uh, like uh, like. You know, criticizing and and despising that kind of discourse. So it was in that sense, like it was very new. It was an alternative to the RKP's discourse as well as the Republican People's Party's earlier discourse. Yes, there, it's a very religion-friendly document. The Book of Radical Love. Um, religion means love is a little section, uh, and uh, this is um, not not typical of the party. And it's uh, but he was very religion-friendly. Went to mosques. Um, he 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 was kind of uh, meeting people where they were, as as, as it were. Yes, um, 
I think we often have this like uh, idea of the JHP as very much against religion, but I don't think it's um, I, I don't think it's like completely right. I think JHP is against uh, the use of religion for political purposes, um, and um, Imam Maulu himself, I mean, does it very naturally. He goes to um, the mosque not because of the you know as a, as a part of his election campaign, but he does so anyways, right? So it. He, in a way, brought uh, in his his identity, his personality to the campaign, and and that message was, I think, uh, seen as a you know, and, and it it was a religion religion friendly uh, discourse. Um, so, but I, I I don't totally agree that JHP is like um, against uh, religion as as a party. Right. I'm talking with Aicha Alemdarolu, and she is the uh, with the Kiman Modern Turkish Studies Program at Northwestern University, and we're talking about the election in Istanbul, the rerun election won by the challenger Ekrem Imamogulu and um, his policy of uh, radical love in the Book of Radical Love. And I just wanted to talk about it a bit as a model for other people around the world in elections because people are talking about it. There was an, uh, an article in The Atlantic that was talking about how it applies to Democratic candidates and other people and um, it, because it is self-aware about this, the, the Book of Radical Love, it's talking about what's going on all over the world. And it talks, mm-hmm. it talks about the depoliticized voter, religion means love, the disease of our time is hatred. Uh, mm-hmm. Don't get divided into camps. It gives you advice on what to avoid, hubris, sarcasm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, 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 just go, it just keeps ticking through things. Haste, mm-hmm. uh, high politics, how to run an election campaign. It answers some questions about being nice, introducing yourself, smiling. Don't talk mm-hmm. conceptually. Be concrete. Have an idea. Don't lord over people. Don't wag fingers. Talk less. Listen more. Um, and you know it has poetry in it, and uh, it's got some really interesting ideas about how to counter um, the divisive kind of rhetoric that we're seeing in this country and and all over the place. Yes, yes. I mean, I think in that sense, it's a it's a good. Um strategy for it could be a good strategy for uh leftist uh populism left populism uh that uh, many uh many social scientists and analysts think that will be a, a way to counter the rise of right populism uh, so in that sense i think what ekrami momolu did uh show that it, it it has a real um you know possibility of success and it could be a lesson as you as you mentioned for for other countries uh who are dealing with these um you know right-wing um, authoritarian leaders uh, one of the advisors of uh imam ololu said um ignore erdogan but love those who love him that's mm-hmm. that's a wild idea <laughs> that's a really 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 wild and and very powerful idea i think it's like this idea of listening to them not speaking over not like uh telling them what to do or belittling despising them but uh but just listening them and and reaching out to them uh taking them seriously and it's um you know um it's uh it's very strong it's a powerful message and and it works it, we, we we have seen it um that how imamolo was able to uh really um create this bond with with communities and i mean we don't have the exact um sort of results of how many voters moved from akp to um 
CHP Jehete, but it seems that uh, his 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 message was. Um, was successful in bringing in uh, people who weren't um, who didn't vote for him in the first place in uh, in the 31st of March elections. There's all sorts of discussion about how, what this will do to uh, President Erdogan and his strategy, and a lot of people seem to think that he's got to move closer to the radical love kind of ideas, and you know he might begin to release um, journalists and gulanists from prison that. He'll have to, you know, say some nicer things about the Kurdish uh, people and parties and you know, in prison political leaders. Do you, does this make Erdogan any softer? Um, I think that's the hope, right? I mean, we we want Turkey to be a um, to be a better place, uh, which treats its academics, politicians, opposition politicians, and, and journalists better, which treats it people better, listens to the basically, you know voices that are different from the ruling party and we i mean that that's the hopeful optimism that we we have but we don't know if uh if the president will live up to those expectations uh, and some people also say that he might double down on uh, on the repressive sort of measures so we don't know yet uh, he hasn't uh he hasn't um you know expressed his thoughts after the elections he only um you know congratulated the um, the the elected mayor uh, on Twitter, so we don't know how he will uh, uh, proceed with the. How did the Kurdish parties react to this? Um, I mean, the, the the Kurdish party has been very successful. Its leader is in prison, but um, do they do they um, kind of go all in on 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 a campaign of radical love? Um, yes, I mean the um, the imprisoned leader of the People's Democratic Party, Selatin Demirtas. Uh, he expresses thoughts a couple of days before the second elections um, uh, on Sunday, and he said, "This is um, uh, Imamoglu's appeal is what we should support because uh, he's for democracy, he's for uh, justice, equality, and freedoms, and that's what we want uh, in Turkey." So, um, so he was um, his party, um, um, his 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 party basically were behind the the campaign of the of the JHP and supported our uh, Imamoglu. Um, it'll be interesting to see what Imamoglu does when he gets in into the mayor's office again. He was in office for just a little stretch of well, I don't know eleven fourteen days or something. And mm -hmm. they were he was finding out interesting things about what the ruling party had been doing, and um, it's been a, a universe of mega projects there in Istanbul, and uh, there's there's corruption, there's uh, people's using cars and all sorts of things. Uh, what do you think he'll he'll kind of figure out what what people will learn about the ruling party from from his tenure? Um. I mean, the the idea is that he bring uh, he brings all those um, you know people who are responsible for corruptions um, to justice, right? So he has to, I guess, like do a uh, in depth investigation into all these like projects, how they were financed, how the money was used, uh, and and bring to uh, people you know people to justice and uh, in this corruption. Um, Cases. Um, I mean, one thing that he he mentioned during the campaign, and I, I think which really made sense with a lot of people, is um, emphasizing waste and that 
he, he in his, during his mayorship uh there will uh there will be not much uh you know there won't be waste because there he has been sort of talking about how public resources were wasted during the uh 25 years of uh AKP um governance in uh in Istanbul um and and that really sort of was a in a, in a way like shifting this idea of focusing on corruption but like talking about waste was important because corruption in turkey became a, a word that is very charged due to the corruption scandal against the president of uh, about president erdogan uh in uh 2014 Uh so he in a way changed that language into like talking about waste not corruption but waste and and that message was really um taken seriously by 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 the waters in Istanbul Aicha Alem Darolu is the associate director of the Kemen Modern Turkish Studies program and a research assistant professor of sociology at Northwestern University. Thanks a lot for joining me and talking about the election in Istanbul and the new mayor and the book of radical love. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having me. Bye, Jerome. Thanks. Coming up after the break we'll talk about the Bitter Jester Jester Music Festival in Highland Park and we'll announce some of the winners. It should be fun. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. One of the nice things about summer is music festivals in the outdoors. Odds are you don't have to stroll far in your community to find talented people playing in the parks. Highland Park's Bitter Jester Music Festival took this community idea and event to the next level and created the largest professional music competition for up-and-coming bands in the Midwest. We've highlighted the Bitter Jester Music Festival the last couple of years, and this time we're going to take it to the next level and reveal some of the winners live on the radio. With me is Nick DeGrazia, founder and executive producer of the Bitter Jester Music Festival. Hey Nick, how are you doing? Very well. You brought a friend here. Michael Saitlin is a performance advisor for the four-time uh a four-time competitor in the Bitter Jester Music Festival and he's one of the judges in the grand finale. Nice to meet you, Michael. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Um tell people about what happened here. You've been doing this for 14 years, Nick, and it's evolved into something pretty pretty big. It's evolved into my hair getting a lot more gray. Um <laughs> yeah, we started as a small competition for Highland Park and Deerfield High School bands basically, and over the last decade and a half This event has ballooned into something where we get way more submissions than we actually have slots for. So every Friday in June, we have half a dozen different bands that will compete. We have a selection of five uh professional judges who are in the audience that score the bands. We have one winning band each week, and then after our four preliminary concerts, we pick uh 20 uh, sorry we go through the 20 bands that didn't win and we pick four additional wild card bands. So these are bands that played very very well on their Fridays might have won if it was a different group of judges or if they had a different, you know, if the weather had cooperated or whatever it might have been. And so today on the air we're going to be announcing who those wild card bands are for a total of 8 bands that will compete against each other on the 4th of July grand finale. And it's you get people get fun prizes and get um help. Um Michael, you've been helping the bands. Um what what explain what you do there. So this year 
is part of the education initiative that Nick wants to do with Bitter Jester. Uh, my background is in music education and education, so on something I've been doing is while the bands are performing live on their Fridays, I've been giving having a handheld recorder to give them live feedback based on their set that they get to listen to after the fact. And it's all advice that they could take or leave. I don't tell them to do anything differently. I tell them that it's specifically advice for Battle of the Bands and then specifically for the Bitter Jester battle. And it's just a cool opportunity to see, you know, give bands feedback. And as being a person that's done it for four years and having someone that I wish could give us feedback when we sucked, uh, to, to improve, and you know, all these bands are way better than we were when we competed. Well, uh, have you? What kind of reaction do you get to that? To, to your feedback, because I imagine some people want to jump down your throat and strangle you, and other people, uh, you know, have revelations. So, actually, I haven't gotten the jump down my throat at least face to face yet. I'm sure it might when, be coming. Uh, it might be coming on the fourth. Uh, but I've gotten a couple emails from a couple groups saying thank you, and it's kind of you know makes me feel good about being able to be there and help bands with feedback michael does a really good job of saying this is just my own personal advice take it or leave it and you know my my, my feedback would be different if i was just hearing you perform so i, I think he, he sets the the bar appropriately and maybe you could give every judge one of these little oh, recorders, and then they could get more feedback and more confused or than they ever that, were Or we could just give the bands a recorder to judge the judges. That would be – I'm sure a lot of the bands would love that. <laughs> uh, Michael, what, uh, why did you do this four years in a row? What's fun about doing this? So Bitter Jester is quite an experience. Um, when we started – and Nick is recording me talking about this for his own, you know, selfish gain – um, because I've said this in several interviews, but how attention to how much attention to detail Nick has is remarkable. He kind of treats every band and puts him puts them under his wing and is a mentor and genuinely cares for every person that is a part of it. He helps bands get performance opportunities outside of just being able to play in Highland Park. Uh, he gives them feedback. He calls each. In every band, now that I said that he's going to have to call each and every band this year. <laughs> call a lot of the bands. <laughs> yeah. He calls a lot of the bands and just talks to them about how mature professionally were, what things that they can improve on. And just the community community that Nick has in Bitter Jester is the reason we kept reapplying every single year. How? What was the best you did? We got third place three years in a row. Oh. And out of, and out of, out of you know, back then 16 or 20, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. we He likes to... Give us a lot of smack for not, never getting in the top two. But he named an <laughs> award after us. All right. We're talking about Highland Park's Bitter Jester Music Festival. It is ongoing, and uh, the big 4th of July finale is coming up. And we're going to announce some of the winners, Nick. And we're going to play some of their music. We've got the, the cuts lined up. Yeah. And we've got envelopes. This is just like the Academy Awards. Yes, here. people can hear this, the envelopes and, in, and at home. So Michael and I will very quickly announce our featured solo artist and our featured showcase band. So Michael with the showcase band, this is a group that is, is not going to be in competition, but we thought was great, full of energy, and it is... Augmented 7th. So they will be opening our concert on the 4th of July. Augmented 7th. And what kind of music did they play? Were they... They're an all-instrumental horn band. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. That's fantastic. And our featured soloist who's going to play while the judges deliberate is none other than Hutch Hopner, 
who is an incredible 11-year-old pianist who is going to blow the roof off the house. I guarantee it. Hold it. 11 years old? Yeah, he's phenomenal. And um, what was he playing? He he does classic rock on piano and guitar, and I think he'll be playing piano on the fourth, but i got to talk to him now because he's, he's listening right now and just <laughs> found this out. So. <laughs> Well, that's very exciting. An 11-year-old, is that like a world's record, or is that common? No, we've had 10 and 11-year-olds perform and and beat 20-year-olds, so... Oh, that's very interesting. It has happened. (laughs) So, um, we want to play some of the the music from some of the groups. Now, we're moving on to a a different category is These are the wild card bands. So, these are bands that didn't win their Friday night, but will be in competition on an even playing field with the four winning bands. So, Jerome has envelope number one. All right. And we have music for these bands, right? Yes. The first winning band is Out of Pocket. And let's hear some music from Out of Pocket. This song is uh, Phenom. Phenom, one of the first uh, wildcard bands in the Bitter Jester Music Festival. We're announcing the winners live on the air. And Nick DeGrazia, you have the second one? I do. And after hours and hours of deliberation, the second wildcard band is from Wheaton, Illinois, The Recall. The Recall? We have a song called Fallen Roses here from The Recall. That's the recall from Wheaton, Illinois, and their song Fallen Roses. I, when, I, when, I, when we heard the song Fallen Roses, I thought it's going to be some kind of sweet song. And, <laughs> and it turned out to be kind of a heavy metal yeah. band here. So we're halfway through the wildcard announcements. Uh, you know, there, the fact is there are 20 phenomenal bands. We only pick four of the remaining 20. We, we literally spend about 48 hours debating this stuff and going over the numbers, reading all the judges' forms, listening to music. This is not an easy thing. And uh, Out of Pocket and The Recall, are, you know, they were definitely two very deserving bands. We have two more that we're going to announce in a second. And, and they seem like a very accomplished they, metal band. I, uh, how old are they? Um, they are, if I remember If they're correctly. 11 years old, no, they're going to be a little... They're nine, Jerome. <laughs> no, they're, they're late teens, early 20s, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is just the whole the whole lineup on the Fourth of you July. You got to get through that be... angsty section of adolescence to <laughs> yeah. really get there for the heavy metal. I think. Yeah, and it's a good variety of music too. I think, and we're we're going to hear very different styles in a second. All right, Michael Saitlin has uh, the winner number three. 
All right. Joyce Lane. Joyce Lane. Joyce Lane is from Naperville, Illinois, and we have her song, Give Me Anything. That's Give Me Anything by Joyce Lane, which is not a woman, but a band. <laughs> Probably not I the first time that they've had that happen with the name only. Michael, you like that tune. I am obsessed with that tune. The Nick showed me this song when they first uh, applied, and it was so cool to hear. It's a it's a really solid pop tune, it sounds like to yeah. me, and they're not messing around. Yeah. Do people have to write their own tunes? In no, this? they don't have to, but if, if a band is doing cover music, uh, we really ask that they bring their own style and spin to it. And Michael's cracking up because they lost their first year, and the judges kept saying, you need more original music. So oh. they wrote a song about losing, and then they won that second year and then came in third overall. So. <laughs> What was the name of your uh, song about losing? It was called A Song for All of Us. My uh, <laughs> my uh, friend Kevin, who's our drummer, sat in his basement for hours on end because we didn't know how to write a song. So, and he just went off. Did you have any subtitles like, oh, this rotten, bitter jester music festival? It was just like about how weird Nick DeGrazia is yeah, and how much we hated That's jester. not true. No, no, not even close. We are announcing the winners, uh, the, the wild card bands for the Bitter Jester Music Festival. The grand finale is on the 4th of July, as it is every year in Highland Park. And I will say, too, this is an event that's awesome for families. We're going to have grilled corn and a face painter, and it's Highland Park's 150th birthday, so the fireworks are going to be twice as big as they normally are. So if you like fireworks, this is the place to be. Whoa. (laughs) Um, And now we've got the last uh, card here. This is the fourth of four wild card bands. Jerome is opening it. Kitchen, uh, through the kitchen hole. Through the kitchen hole, all the way from Eau Claire, Wisconsin. So they're going to be driving in about four or five hours to join us on the 4th of July. Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Yeah. What's up with that? You're, you're drawing people from... We draw people from about a 350-mile radius these days. Oh, no kidding. And are, how old are, is Through the Kitchen Hole? They are late teens as well. They are late teens. Yeah. And this is their song, Transitions.
Through the Kitchen Hole from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and their song uh, Transitions. What do you like about this band, Michael? So being uh, the performance advisor gives me the opportunity to hear and give feedback to every single band on all four Fridays. And something that just blew me away about Through the Kitchen Hole is they played the song. If you've ever played Guitar Hero, it's called Through the Fire and Flames. And it's the last song on Guitar Hero because of its technical need on guitar. And both these guitarists just were shredding and were so technically proficient, it was remarkable. It just was turning heads at, at on their Friday. Yeah. So there's a good guitar teacher somewhere in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Somewhere, yeah. That is cranking out the uh, Or two future shredders. great guitar teachers, and they just don't know it yet. <laughs> That's terrific. And um, so they'll be coming back for the 4th of July. Yeah, there will be eight bands in competition. The, the show starts at 4.30, and we have judges that will pick two finalist bands and then the audience cheers for their winner after those two finalists play a single song it's a super high energy uh opportunity for the audience to get involved and the music is going to be great so this happens where in highland park for people who want to invade highland park on the fourth of july and not make it just a community thing yeah you would hop on the, the the highway north get off at park avenue and it's 1080 park avenue west the venue is called walters field but it is spelled w o l t e r s Walters Field in Highland Park, 60035. Uh, it sounds like a super uh, good way and fun time to spend on the 4th of July. It's, it's fantastic. It's, it's all American. Yeah, if you're looking for a way to shake it up and try something you haven't done before, I the, the music is incredible, the venue is nice, the food is great. It's just a really fun time. And it, what a variety of music, too. Oh, yeah. All right, the Bitter Jester Music Festival, year 14 in Highland Park. And we've got um, a couple special mentions. We're going to go out on some other songs from other bands that um, uh, that are uh, the Breadsticks. The Breadsticks by Fighting Bob. We're going to hear that. Fighting Bob? That sounds great. Uh, thanks a lot for listening. This has been Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and here is Fighting Bob. Why? Because Breadstick Day is here at information continues to come at us faster and faster sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind npr's throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed find npr's throughline wherever you get your podcasts